Well, this morning, I'm really excited to introduce our guest speaker. Uh, he's a friend of uh, mine and Pamela's, um, Brother Monroe. I don't know when we met. It was a while ago. I remember where it was, actually. I don't know if you remember. It was at a summer camp. And you were dropping off either your kids or the kids from your church. And, uh, no, it was a summer, AG summer camp. And uh, I was I was up there doing something, and we and someone said, "This is the new pastor of the church in Stanford." At that time, uh, we were we had just left Greenwich, Connecticut. So anyway, he and his wife Sherry, for the last thirty-seven years or so, have been involved in Christian ministry. They've pastored two churches here in southern in uh, New England. They were on the mission field in Africa for twelve years. Uh, worked at North Point Bible College for twelve years or so. And uh, now they're on a new assignment, um, living out in Adams, New, uh, uh, Massachusetts. Anyone know where Adams is, by the way? I didn't realize it was a two and a half hour ride. He drove two and a half hours to get here this morning. But, uh, amen. <laughs> no, no speeding tickets, right? Well, we'll talk about that later. Uh, and... Um, he, he and his wife Sherry are now involved with an intercultural ministry here in New England. There are around 24 different ethnic groups in our, in our country. And many of these ethnic groups are getting assimilated into the Assemblies of God. It's a process and it's difficult. So Brother and Sister Monroe will be working with these different ethnic groups in our uh, northern New England and southern New England to try to get them acclimated and assimilated into the Assembly of God movement. That's a great ministry. And, and Brother, you're a great man for the job. He was a professor at North Point for many years. I heard him preach. This man could preach. He, you preached at the graduation sometime a couple of years ago. I was so impressed with a Pentecostal slash scholarly presentation. I was moved in my heart. It was wonderful. So please give Brother Ray Monroe a warm welcome as he comes to share his vision. Amen. I love you. Thank you for being here. Good morning. You know, when you go to different places and you say, what do you say? Oh, it's nice to be here. Right? That's the polite thing to say. But I can say that this morning being here, and I really mean it. <laughs> it is nice to be here. And one of the reasons is Rick and Pam, as he said, that we've known each other for a number of years, and I thank God for them and their ministry. And then also I know some of you. Patty, yeah, I was looking for you. I was turning around and I was looking there and you were on this side. But it's good to, good to see you. Thank God that you're, well, you're still at North Point. Are, are you there? Wonderful. Yeah, I spent, um, and Carol, I don't want to forget you, Carol. It's good to see you too. And I have a number of students that I was allowed the privilege to teach at School of Ministry. How many of you were there? Will you admit that? One, two out there, yeah. Anybody else? Well, they all graduated. I don't mean they went to heaven, but <laughs> school of ministry, uh, uh, since I started at North Point back in 2008, I was teaching at the school of ministry in our network office, and that, again, was another extreme opportunity to get to know some of our folks. And Pastor Rick and Pam, on occasion, when we were at North Point, we'd pop in here now and again. So I've been to your church uh, a number of times, and we thank God for your ministry. So I'm glad to be here. His introduction, wow, he scared me. <laughs> that was very, very kind, Rick. Thank you so much. And let me just say this. You know, it's good to be in a New Testament church, okay? A New Testament church. Now, I found out a long time ago that if a church is going to define itself as a New Testament church, that one of the most important things that they have to do is do the things that are found in the New Testament. You can't just put it out there on the sign, we are a New Testament church. I mean, you surely could advertise that, but if you really are a New Testament church, 
then you have to do the things that I refer to. And one of those things, we well, more than one, we experienced this morning. We entered into the presence of God in a beautiful time of praise and worship. That was one of the characteristics of the New Testament church. It was a church of praise. It was a church of power with the demonstration and signs and wonders of the Holy Spirit. And we also this morning enjoyed, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, a tongue and an interpretation of of that tongue. So when I say I'm happy to be in a New Testament church, again, I really mean it. Not that I would ever criticize any other church that would call itself a New Testament church and not practice those things. What am, I hope I'm not confusing you. I'm just trying to commend you. Everybody say amen. All right. Okay. Just a little encouragement, right? Do you need some encouragement this morning? You know, I've never known anybody dying from getting an overdose of encouragement. And I've been around a while. <laughs> yeah. No, we all can use some encouragement. And that's what I want to do here this morning, especially as I take a few moments uh, after I share with you what Pastor Rick has mentioned about our new ministry opportunity. My wife and I, Sherry, and our three adult daughters, we, uh, Sherry and I have been in the ministry, as Pastor said, for a number of years. I thank God I got saved a long time ago, right here in southern New England, in the state of Connecticut. I did not have the privilege of being raised in a church. In fact, I never picked up a copy of the Bible till I was 19. I wasn't living for Jesus. I didn't know about Jesus. I, I kind of knew about church, and I, I think I had a great deal of a religious experience doing things a certain way and so on and so forth. But it wasn't until 1971... I mean, there's a lot of years. If you're going to add and subtract, you're going to need a calculator. 1971. At 19, my best friend and myself in Bridgeport, Connecticut, he was uh, a boyhood friend of mine, lived in the neighborhood in our high school. He was the quarterback on the football team. I was the center, played on the line. We hung out together. And one summer... Back in 1971, where we lived in Bridgeport, it was along Long Island Sound, and there was a beach area there. Um, and nothing like Cape Cod or anything like that, but there was a beach area, Long Island Sound. And uh, during the summer on that beach area, Jim and I and a lot of other guys and girls would go down there to party and have a lot of fun, I guess. And that's where we would go. We would congregate there after dark on a summer night, and everybody would hang out, so on and so forth. Uh, and we weren't praising Jesus or anything like that. Um, we were we were doing stuff that was, anyway, in retrospect, it was not glorifying to God. Well, Jim and I one night headed, headed down to the beach because we were uh, aware that there was going to be another party that night. And for some reason, we got down to the beach area too early. It was still light out. And, and nothing, if I could say it this way, forgive me, nothing really happened until it got dark. The deeds of darkness, you know, police and so on and so forth. <laughs> People were drinking and doing whatever we did then. And you, you, you understand what I'm saying, right? Not good stuff. So we had some time to kill. But coincidentally, on that beach area, they had a theater in the round. We called it a tent. It looked like a big tent. And every summer they would bring in musical groups. They'd bring in comedians. In fact, uh, you, some of you have never heard of Bob Hope, but one year they brought Bob Hope in there. Flip Wilson. And they brought in singing groups. And occasionally we'd attend some of those programs. But this certain week in June, they brought in under the auspices of the Billy Graham Association, they brought in an evangelist, and his name was Leighton Ford. So Jim and I had heard about it. We had to drive by the tent to get to our destination at the other part of the beach, and we had some time to kill. So we said to each other, kind of talking each other into this thing, do you want to go in there and kill some time? I said, yeah, let's go, let's go see what all these Jesus freaks are about. 
yeah, let's go make fun of these holy rollers, right? So we parked the car, went over there. And they didn't charge any admission. I'm, I'm glad of that now. I don't know if we would have we went in if they did. But we got in free. We're seated. And then a choir got up, a mass choir. And they sang. Whoa. I realize now they were singing about Jesus. But what I have come to understand that as they began to sing, that it was the Spirit of God that began to work in Jim's life and my life. During the course of that time of worship and singing, during the announcements, during the offering, Jim and I, we did not make fun of anyone or anything. Because these people, they didn't have two heads, they weren't crazy looking, they weren't wild, they had a relationship with Christ. And then the man got up to preach, and a typical evangelist of the day, back in the context, evangelists used to wear white suits and white shoes. I tried that once, and I looked like an ice cream salesman, so that wasn't going to work. But anyway, he got up to preach in his white suit and shoes, and the title of his sermon at that time was, Jesus Christ Superstar. Is that who they say you really are? It was a rock opera during that time. Very popular. And in fact, I saw somewhere they still do renditions of that op- rock opera today. There's a, a movie about it and whatever. So we were aware about who Jesus was. He preached. He talked about Jesus. Then he gave an altar call. Crunch time, huh? So I nudged Jim and he looked at me. And after Leighton Ford gave the invitation, I said to Jim, do you want to go down there? And he said, no, do you? And I said, oh, no, of course not. (laughs) We left. We left. Monday night. We did not go to the beach party. We drove around a little bit, headed home, because we were touched. Touched. Nobody invited us. I I think we, we... Recalled later on in high school, there was two Christian girls that used to tell everybody about Jesus. And honestly, Jim and I, they were nice girls, but we weren't interested in these girls that were telling everybody about Jesus. So I didn't really know what a born-again Christian was. Let me speed up my story. The next night when we decided what we were going to do, we knew we had to go back to that meeting. They were going to be there five days. So on a Tuesday night, the 21st of June, 1971, if you want to do the math, I'm close to 100, not 90, like our sister, God bless her. 1971, June 21st, went to the service, Leighton Ford got up, preached another wonderful message, and that night when he extended the invitation for people to receive Christ, Jim and I went forward and gave our lives to Christ. See, I'm just telling you my story. Because we all have a story when we come to faith. My story is probably a lot different than your story. And even today, after all of these years and being in ministry, I still never get tired of telling someone, especially one-on-one, my story and how Jesus changed my life. He did. And by the way, Jim, my best friend, he's just retired in Raleigh, North Carolina after 45 years of ministry, pastoring, and teaching. So I I give God the glory. Then after getting called into ministry, going to what was at the time... Carol Zion Bible Institute, and Patty, we know that, back in East Providence, graduated there, went on to get another degree with uh, Southwestern Assembly of God University. I got married. I had three children, and our first church was in Manchester, New Hampshire, not too far from here. We were there five years, 
At, uh, at the time, it was called First Assembly. Now they've changed the name of the church and moved it out into Auburn, and they are doing a fantastic ministry, far above anything I ever did. But we, being there, I always refer to that church in Manchester as my sweetheart church, because everything we tried worked. <laughs> it surely wasn't me. I was 26 or 27 years old. I couldn't preach an ant out of an anthill. I'll let you be the judge if that's true or not today. I didn't know. what It was the tail end of the charismatic movement. There was a lot of Catholic people and still are in Manchester. And they found their way to our church and everything was going real well. Until you might say, my wife would have said at the time, until he went to Africa. Why did I go to Africa for three weeks? To visit my best friend, Jim Seymour, who was a missionary in Africa. Stayed three weeks in the nation of Zimbabwe. And while I was there, the Lord just spoke to my heart about the fact that someday you're going to be back here full time. I came back, knew that was what God wanted me to do, and had to convince my wife, Sherry. She thought I was crazy. We had a seven-year-old, a five-year-old, and a three-year-old. And I said, we're going to Africa. And she said, right. Maybe you're going to Africa. She didn't understand, but I knew God had spoken to me about it, and after much prayer and being patient with her and she being patient with me, she knew that's where God wanted us. So in 1984, we left and spent four years in the Republic of South Africa. Uh, Just as an aside, South Africa at that time was not in the political state that it is in today. They were still under apartheid. Nelson Mandela was still in jail. You had 80% of the population being ruled by about 18% of the country. So it was not a real, uh, I would have to say, we didn't go for, let's go see the animals, lions, tigers, and bears. Well, no bears and no tigers in Africa, okay? Just lions and elephants and other things, but... It was not a sense of adventure that caused us there. I knew in my heart that's what we were supposed to do. I had the opportunity those four years to work with the Zulu-speaking people of South Africa. Uh, The Zulu people, that's the largest black tribe in South Africa. I worked with them and did missionary work, went out and preached in rural areas, so on and so forth. Wonderful ministry. And I also had the chance to teach at one of our Bible colleges in South Africa. Our next term, the next four years, we were asked to go to a small country called Swaziland. Anybody ever hear? Yeah, Swaziland, sure. Uh, They've changed the name of Swaziland. It's called Eswatini. Basically still means the Swazi people. The reason they changed the name of the country was that I think the United Nations gave them about $60 million to to update their name, and they changed it. Anyway, I'm saying that to say that the Swazi people and the Zulu Zulu people, they're tribal cousins. So their language and their culture very similar to each other. So making that transition, Swaziland, uh, the country itself, geographically is adjacent to South Africa. So it wasn't a big move, but it was another country. I... uh, had an opportunity to be involved in education there, was the principal of Swaziland College of Theology for four years, and uh, with the school's help, some of my students, my academic dean, we planted an English-speaking church in the capital city of Baban, Swaziland. We started the church, we started it in a movie theater. The only place we could find to rent. In fact, I've got pictures, if I would have brought my mission stuff, of my wife Sherry holding Sunday school classes with about 10 kids. And the only space that we had available to teach Sunday school was in the restrooms. I'm not kidding. Yeah, that was it. Uh, I know I would get arrested here in America if any of our churches tried that, and I understand it, but when you had people coming to the church and you had children, that's all we had to utilize. Anyway, long story short, I took some students from North Point about 10, 11 years ago over to Swaziland on a trip. I went back to that church. 
uh, the church had gotten its own building, built a, a, a church building, an auditorium of about, I would say, seated 400 people. Uh, they had a Swazi pastor, which was the ultimate goal, not to have an Umlungu, a white man, as the pastor. They had a, a Swazi pastor. He had two full-time assistants. They had two or three morning services, and the pastor pulled up in a, in a brand new Mercedes. They were doing well. I was ready to leave them my resume. You're looking for help? But that was that church that about eight or nine years ago we helped to plant in the capital city, self-sufficient. It was missions come full circle. A missions church that was now self-sufficient, self-governing, self-propagating, self-supporting. They didn't need missionary dollars. So Christian Life Christian Life Center in Baban, Swaziland is doing highly successful today. Then we came back and I pastored, as Rick said, in Stanford um, for 10 years. And then from 2008 to about 2020, I got what I called my dream job. And it just so happened that my dream job was located in Haverhill, Massachusetts. Everybody from Haverhill say amen, all right? Huh? You know where, you know, Bradford College? And the last 12 years were really an excellent opportunity to be with students. Really, really was. That really was something that I thoroughly enjoyed working with students and fine people that I've mentioned and referred to. We, we had a good run there, I think, didn't we? It was good, and I enjoyed that. Now, what are you doing now? You're retiring? No. I call it redirecting my ministry. That's, doesn't that sound better than retiring? Or should I give up on that? I don't know. I like redirecting. And as your pastor mentioned, the redirection is taking uh, Sherry and I to... Well, get an approval as missions associate, missionary associates, with our Assemblies of God Fellowship. And we're going to be working with our intercultural, international churches throughout New England. As Pastor Rick said, we have about 26, 27 different ethnic fellowships throughout our country. You know, in the state of Texas here in America, you know what the third largest language spoken is? You've got English, you've got Spanish, then you've got Vietnamese in Texas. Do you know we have uh, two or three Vietnamese, uh, Vietnamese congregations here in southern New England? In fact, during my time at North Point, I did a few interim pastorates within our district and our network, and one of those interim pastorates was at our Vietnamese church located in Worcester, Mass. I was working with them and some of our students for about two years, and that was such a rewarding experience uh, to be involved with that church. So that's, in essence, I hope I'm covering all my bases and explaining what I'm going to be doing. I'm basically with our pastors, just trying to build relationships with them, to be a liaison from uh, their perspective of their church with our district and the Assemblies of God. I spoke a um, few, few months back now with our superintendent up in northern New England. Uh, that district, northern New England, comprises Maine, Vermont, New Hampshire. And as I was speaking with the superintendent, he said, you know, Ray, uh, their offices are located in Portland, Maine. He said, you know, I've been contacted within the last few months. I've been contacted from, I would have to say, about seven different pastors that are located around Portland, and they are all African pastors with African congregations out of Assemblies of God background back in Africa. And they want to get affiliated with the American Assemblies of God. So yes, give the Lord a hand for that. Thank you. So building relationships, trying to help them answer any questions they might have about... Uh, the American Assemblies, just being a support with them. I'm not going in there with, this is what you need to do, and you have to do this and that. No, 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 no. I just want to come alongside them. In essence, what I did a great deal of working in Swaziland and also in South Africa with our national churches. So uh, it's an exciting time. Uh, just yesterday, I was on the phone with our Korean pastor down in Norwalk, Connecticut, and talking to him and helping him through some of the needs that he has in his 
Baptist Church. So that's one of the reasons I'm here this morning, just to share that with you. I would certainly uh, appreciate your prayers. We have a budget to raise. It's not an extensive budget, but uh, I found out in ministry, as in life, there's no free chicken dinner. Somebody say amen. Yeah, I wish there was. I mean, I don't know if you like chicken. Is this for me, Pastor? Yeah. To raise, and uh, that's one of the reasons, as I said, I'm here, simply to share that part of our ministry with you. I think, uh, Sister Pam, we left some prayer cards around. If you could take one and pray for us, I'd certainly appreciate that very much. Amen. So that's the mission's appeal. I'm changing, I, I know pastors say this, but I just felt, I, I'm, I was going to really emphasize missions, but I, I just want to, I want to encourage you this morning. Can I do that? I'm going to preach from the Bible. I want you to rest assured with that, but pray for my wife, myself, and our missions work. I'd appreciate it. But as I just take these remaining few minutes, I want to, just want to leave you with one verse of scripture this morning. And I simply have given the title to the message, A Prophet's Proclamation. A Prophet's Proclamation. Now I'm taking one text, one verse, out of one of the minor prophets. And it's out of the book of Nahum. N-A-H-U-M. Nahum chapter 1 and verse 7. That's where we'll begin. And that's where we're going to end. One verse, one text out of this prophetic proclamation. Nahum chapter 1 and verse 7. I'm reading out of the New King James Version. If your version is uh, different, I I think there's enough similarities between the two that uh, different versions in the NIV, it basically kind of uses the same English word to express the thought of what Nahum the prophet is saying. We don't know a great deal, just to give you a little bit of background information. We don't know a great deal about this human author. It's a brief prophecy. We classify him as one of the minor prophets. You've probably heard that before. The major prophets, why are they major? Well, because they have a lot more content, a lot more chapters. The minor prophets usually are shorter Not that their message is any less important, it's just that it's not as long when you have the book of Isaiah, the book of Jeremiah, 50, 60 different chapters. So we don't know a great deal about who Nahum was. Oh, we got the scripture right up there. What does his name mean, Pastor Ray? Nahum means consoler or comforter. One who consoles or one who comforts. Now, The subject, just looking at an overview of the book, the subject about this prophecy, prophecy, excuse me, is about an ancient city called Nineveh. Who remembers what happened at Nineveh? Do we remember his name? Jonah. Jonah had a remarkable revival in Jonah. I mean, Jonah had it in, where, where do I get him? In Nineveh. I got I'm not even getting him in the belly of the whale. He's out. He's vomited up on the land. Jonah, a lot to preach on in Jonah. Jonah, really a lot. He didn't want to go. He got in the right place, the right time. And when he got to be in the location that God had designed for him, he had a great revival. And he preached throughout the whole city. Nineveh was the ancient capital of the Assyrian Empire. Popular city, big city, but very godless. You know, one of the side notes about Jonah's success there, I read it and it had a somewhat of a, I don't know, a little bit of a maybe gross biological background to it. Some have said, some Bible commentators, that one of the reasons why Jonah was so successful And as you read through the narrative, while he walked through the streets, everywhere Jonah went, he drew a crowd. And so some Bible scholars who believe that that story was real, somebody say amen, that he really spent those days and nights in the belly of the great fish. It's not a whale. I know it says a great fish. We don't have to debate that. Hallelujah. 
But one of the reasons some of the Bible scholars have kind of, well, they thought that, you know, maybe, maybe the reason he was so successful is the fact that while he stayed in the belly of that great fish for that length of time, in the stomach, you know what's in your stomach? Acid. And in the great fish, there's acid. And so some scholars have speculated that those stomach acids of that great fish literally bleached Jonah's skin to the shade of a white albino. So when he was vomited up on the land, as he was walking around, he was, I have no other way to say it, kind of like a character out of a circus. He looked abnormal And that's why he attracted a crowd. Are you still with me? Your salvation doesn't depend on whether that's true or not, but the speculation is quite interesting. Oh, and another thing about Jonah and about the Ninevites is that their main god was a fish god. They worshiped the fish god. So here you got this guy who looks like a circus freak walking through the town telling people to repent and turn to the true Jehovah God. And he's telling them that I came out of the belly of your God. No wonder he had a revival. Am I making any sense? Yeah. Again, kind of speculation, but I like it. All right, that was a hundred years ago. Now, Nahum's there. Why? Guess what happened to the Ninevites in that hundred-year period? They backslid. Bad. Turned away from God. Wicked, evil. Punishing other people. Murdering literally other nations. They were far from God in a hundred years later. Great revival. One of the most fantastic of all in Scripture. Now, a hundred years later, they're far from God. What does that prove to you and I as a side note? It proves that God doesn't have grandchildren. He only has sons and daughters. You got what I'm saying? Yeah. I'm saved. My wife's saved. Does that guarantee that my children and my grandchildren are going to be saved? I wish it was. But the reality is, it's not. Every one of us has to be a son or a daughter of God. So that was the situation of our prophet Nahum. Once great city. Now in this book, in these short chapters, we get a a picture of the wrath of God coming upon a sinful people. That's what it's all about. It's about destruction. It's about doom and gloom. The rest of the book is... Not very uplifting. But the one verse, the one verse that I'm highlighting, to me it stands out like a bright, shining diamond. In the midst of all of this prophecy about what was going to transpire against these people, Nahum chapter 1 and verse 7 says, The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and He knows those who trust in Him. I think that's pretty good. When we think about it, what's it about? It's like the end time book of Revelation. Especially after chapter 4, what was going to happen to them? The wrath of God was going to be poured out upon this wicked, backslidden people. But even in spite of that, the Holy Spirit divinely directed Nahum to utter that word. And I love that word, Nahum chapter 1 and verse 7. Because to me, it speaks to me of the fact, and and you've heard this, I know you are aware of it, it speaks to me about the fact that always and everywhere, God is a loving God. God is a loving God. How do I understand that today by simply reading and glancing at that verse? How do I know that that's reality today? today? Pastor Ray, how do you know that God is good? One reason I know, my friends, that God is good is because of the fact Nahum makes that self-proclamation. Take the first few words of that seventh verse. The goodness of God, the Lord is good 
good. One reason I know that God is love is because of his goodness. Now, I'm preaching to the choir today, aren't I? Probably you know God's good. I don't have to hammer that point, I don't think, too powerfully. In fact, we have testimonies. We give reports. We encourage one another about the goodness of God. God's goodness is who he is as a person. That's one of his virtues. That's one of his characteristics. What is God like? He is a very good God. And today, you and I know him in the person of Jesus Christ. But even back then in the old covenant, Nahum the prophet spoke this word about the love of God being expressed and seen through the goodness of God. You know, what we do as humans, all of us, we have the tendency, I don't care what age you live in, what culture you're from, all of us have to try to break down God. To really understand and appreciate the conception of God, the vastness of God. How did he do all this? You know, as we sit here, we're living in an ever-expanding universe. Do you, you know, that's mind-blowing. The universe is ever-expanding. Where will it end? It's not going to end. But God is in control of the, all of that. So for us to try to get a, a handle, a grasp on God, we... People try to break God down into manageable terms so we can understand him. You know, I got to take a part of God so I can comprehend him. The ancient Jews did that as you read through the Old Testament. They unfortunately exchanged the fact that the God they were serving, they knew, Jehovah God, they understood his power. They understood his awesomeness. But they exchanged all of that for practicing rituals and ceremonies. Is that really what God was all about? Just doing things? Performing ceremonies and obeying rituals? Oh, he's much more than that. And it blinded them. In Jesus' day, the scribes and the Pharisees, they were so blind because of their traditions, because of their culture, that they became, as I said, blinded to the fact that he was the Messiah. And they got confused. They never saw who he really was. And I'd have to say, even today in our American churches, not this one, sometimes our churches are a little bit confused too, Pastor Rick. We confuse style more than substance. Are you with me? I can't preach without a smoke machine. I got to have lights on me. You know, I got to have my skinny jeans on. I tried that once. I looked like a bowling ball on stilts. So, <laughs> you, you, I, by your laughing, you can picture that. I know. <laughs> Style more than substance, huh? And we got, you know, even in the American church, oh man, we got to, you know, hit every high note, low note. Everybody's got to be in sync. We got to have everything all, <laughs> we're good, man. We're good. We're good. But what about the presence of God? Style. Practice, performance, give me the sweet presence of Jesus. That's all I need. That's all I need. The Lord is good. But what about Pastor Ray when things happen in my life that aren't so good? Huh? Have you been there? Yeah. I think we all have. I mean, uh, you know, two years of COVID, I don't know how you feel about that. That wasn't good. What it did to individuals, homes, families, churches, our nation, that wasn't a good experience. Oh, is God still good? Of course he is. What about when the job promotion fails? What about when you get let go or laid off? What about when that relationship you prayed for and earnestly desired for that to succeed, it fell through? 
Pastor Ray, is God still good? Yes, he is. Oh, what about when I, you know, Pastor Ray in the church and they, they don't act like they love Jesus all the time. Huh? Right? Church? You ever had, I don't know if you've ever been hurt by the church or a church or let me cover all my bases, any type of a religious organization, right? We're only human, aren't we? And we are imperfect and we make mistakes. But is God still good? I have to realize, you know, I've been at this for a while, folks, and I've realized, don't get offended, that sheep sometimes bite. Think about it. I, I've been called to be a shepherd and sheep, love sheep, I love them. But I've been bit a few times. Is God still good in the midst of all of that? He most certainly is. We serve a good God. God's love is not only expressed to us in his goodness, but the second part of the verse reflects the fact of his goodness because he's a dependable God. The love of God expressed to his, through his goodness, the love of God, thought number two, expressed through his dependability. What does that middle portion of the verse say? He's a stronghold in the day of trouble. Woo! I love that. You see, that quality, that part of God's character and his nature, I don't know about to you, but to me it makes him very desirable. He is dependable. Which simply means I can trust him. I can depend upon him. I can look to him as a refuge in difficult times. And as I've said, if you and I got a bit analytical with life in general... What in life today can you and I really depend upon? What is the solid rock today that will never let you down, that will always be there to support you? Is it the government? Is it your bank account? Is it Wall Street? What in life can you and I really depend upon save the solid rock Hallelujah. Oh, what was the old hymn on Christ the solid rock? I stand, All other ground is sinking sand. I know it's a hymn and we used to sing hymns. That's okay. But, but you know, good thing about hymns, they used to teach theology. I'm not against modern music, but the old hymns used to reinforce, reinforce theology. I can depend upon my God today. And what are you standing on? I hope you're on the solid rock. If you're going through a trial, a difficulty, a hard time, make sure you're standing on the solid rock. Because as I've said, and as that hymn referred to, everything else is sinking sand. You can depend on Jesus. You can trust Jesus. He won't let you down. He is a stronghold in the day of trouble. When a trial comes your way, when a dark night hits you, remember that verse. He is my stronghold in a day of trouble. Thank God for that. Yeah, I, I've come to the realization that all of our trials have a purpose. Okay? I don't want them. I don't welcome them. You know, you know I'll send me a trial, Lord. No, I'm not. I'm chicken. I, I want, you know. I don't want, no, I want everything to be nice, man. I don't want no difficulty. I don't want no problems. I don't want any challenges. I want it to be smooth sailing. The reality of life has taught me, no, not that way all the time. But our trials have a purpose. They do. Just like, let me illustrate it this way. Hope I don't lose you. I don't think I will. Let's go to Home Depot, all right? We walk around Home Depot. What do we see? Tools, huh? Right? You see tools. You see saws, screwdrivers, paintbrushes. What else? I don't know. Think of something. Brushes. Uh, yeah, right? Every one of those tools has what? A purpose. 
I, I'm not Mr. Mechanic. I'm not a real, you know, I stayed away from stuff. My wife, if Sherry was here, she's actually handier than I am. The only thing I'm successful at when it comes to being handy is screwing in light bulbs. I'm not kidding. I do pretty good with them. But I know that a hammer is made, the purpose is to hammer a nail. A saw is made to cut wood. Screwdriver is to turn a screw. It has a purpose. And in my simplistic thinking, I have to realize that when trials come into my life, each one has a purpose. I don't know why. I surely, as I said, did not sit there welcoming the trial. I know it has a purpose. He is a stronghold in the day of trouble. I can depend upon my Jesus. In 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, you don't have to to turn to it, but 2 Peter 2 9 says this, the Lord knows how to rescue godly men from trials. Write that down if you want. 2 Peter 2 9, the Lord knows how to rescue men from godly, excuse me, godly men from trials. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. And my last thought this morning is the latter part of verse 7. And he knows those who trust in him. I've called this one, I've called this one very, very simply the knowledge of God. And the Lord, or he knows, I should say, those who trust in him. Parents and grandparents, they can tell you all about their children and grandchildren. If you had a couple of days, I could tell you all about my four grandchildren and my three adult daughters. And good parents usually know a great deal about their children. It's just part of the job. We know a lot about our kids and our grandkids. And taking that and looking that from a biblical point of view, our Heavenly Father, as a good parent, as we read the Word of God, confirms that fact over and over again. God knows and has known where His children have been. I could spend a great deal of time illustrating that point from Scripture, but let me give you a a few highlights that confirm this fact today. Did God remember Noah and his family as they went through that great deluge? Say amen. Amen. How about Moses and the children of Israel when they were being emancipated from the bondage and slavery of Egypt? God knew where the Israelites and Moses were. God knew where King David was during his hours of desperation when he was being hunted for his very life by King Saul. God knew where David was. He knew where Daniel was in the lion's den. He knew where the three Hebrew children were in that fiery furnace. God knows where his children are. The psalmist puts it this way. The psalmist says, The Lord knows the way of the righteous. Paul in the New Testament says it a little simpler. Oh, I like what Paul says. The Lord knows them that are his. He knows you today. If you're his born again son or daughter. God knows where you are and where you're going through. And he knows those who trust in him. I'm, I'm reminded of the way Jesus said it. The chief shepherd, huh? What did Jesus say? He said, what? I'm the good shepherd. And he said, I know my sheep. <laughs> I'm the good shepherd and I know my sheep. And he calls his sheep by name. You and I, when we look at a crowd of people, we look at a, a flock of faces. That's all we, we see. Just faces. You're in a, in a large auditorium or stadium. You look at it, the, the numerous amount of people and what do you see? Just faces. But that's not the way Jesus looks at a crowd. 
He knows every face is different. He knows every face has a story. He knows every face has a name. So just to assure you here today, no matter what you're going through, and if you feel like maybe God has forgotten you, let me reassure you from this Old Testament prophet that he knows those who trust in him. Jesus knows my name today. That ought to make you feel good, right? He knows who I am. Hallelujah. Even in the good times, the bad times, when I'm living in a good way, maybe I'm doing things in a bad way. He knows my name and he loves me. And I thank God for that fact today. Just to kind of contrast that, Jesus knows us by name. He knows us as one of his sheep. The day is going to come. (laughs) The day is going to come when Jesus is going to say to some folks, huh? What is he going to say to a multitude of people? I don't like to say it. It's not very uplifting. But someday Jesus is going to say to literally, as I've mentioned, millions of people, depart from me. I never knew you. Do you want to hear those words? Not me. Uh, The one thing I'm waiting for now is well done, thou good and faithful servant. That's all. As I get older, that gets better. Hallelujah. Making it to the finish line. But to contrast that, as I've said, Jesus is not going to express that to a multitude of people. Depart from me. Get away from me. I don't know who you are. But this morning, if you're his child, he knows your name. Be reminded of that. Take hope and be encouraged. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those that are his. Our God is a loving God. He's a dependable God, and he knows me by name today. Now, you got to feel better than when you first came in, huh? I mean, come on. I know you are. Pastor Rick's going to come in a moment and he's going to close the service for us, but thank you for listening to me. Thank you. You know, I've been at this for a while and I can know when people are (laughs) here, there, or everywhere. And I honestly admit, I could tell you're with me today. I've learned too, when it comes to preaching, everybody can communicate but not everybody can connect with an audience. And I hope and pray some way through the verse of Scripture and what I shared with you, we made a little bit of connection today about how good our God is. A stronghold in the day of trouble. And he knows your name. Pastor Rick. Can we all stand together? Thank you, Brother Monroe. I love the message. I love that message. Did you know you spoke to me today? And we didn't talk, did we? But that was a good word of encouragement for all of us. We could always use a word of encouragement. Uh, Every head bowed for just a moment, please. The word has been delivered. I love the introduction and, and the background information about Jonah and Nineveh. And the word has been given, and the word is applicable for right now. So, the Lord is good. He's a stronghold for those who trust him. And he knows who are his. What a wonderful scripture. Wonderful scripture. I just want to raise the question today. Just raise your hand if you can. I'm not going to ask you to step out. Does someone here this morning feel like you, you need to be reminded because of your, your situation that God is still good? Come on. You have to be honest. We're in church. <laughs> it's not always easy to say God is good when everything's going the wrong way. We know. And how many, thank you, how many will uh, address that second part where the Lord is, is my stronghold. The Lord is my foundation. How many of you, let me put it this way, need to get on the rock? Maybe you slipped off the rock. How many need to get on the rock? Anybody? Come on, you got to be honest. We're in church. And then the last part, how many of you just, 
You just need to know with, with all your faith and all your heart that God knows whether you're his or you're not or you're, you're not his. And are you ready to make him your very own if that's the case? So I would say, is there anyone here today putting that all together that knows that God is good, knows that he's the rock, and you know that you need to get on the rock? Anyone like that, just raise your hand. All right, I'm going to pray. Father God, thank you so much for your word this morning. Hallelujah. Thank you for your word. And Father, we pray with those that raise their hands, either for knowing that God is good or having trouble knowing that God is good in the midst of our storm, knowing that you're the rock. And then, Lord, for those that need to get on the rock, Lord, we're all in the same boat. We run to the rock right now. We repent of sin. We repent of a lack of faith. We repent of being weary. And we run to you, Lord, with open arms and say, oh, God, help me today, Lord. Help me get on the rock. Pull me up on the rock if that's the case. Lord, we pray that uh, as we conclude this service, that we would walk out of this sanctuary excited that you've never given up on your people. You've never let go of us. You've never turned away from us. You've been waiting for us. And so, Father, we, we come before you, and we, with those that raise their hands, and all of us, we come before you today. We say, Lord God, here I am. I know I'm a sinner. I know I need help. I know I'm discouraged or whatever, but you are my encouragement today. And I give you my heart. I give you my life. I give you my struggles. I give you my problems. And I have the faith, Lord. I have the faith that you're going to see me through this season of my life. And for that, Lord, we are so thankful. We give you praise, we give you glory, and we give you honor today. In the wonderful name of Jesus, we pray. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Brother Monroe, would you do something? Would you just stand right here in the middle? I'm going to ask everyone to come out of your seat. You can face the congregation. And just gather around Brother Monroe. We want to pray for him. Um, he is not one of our missionaries on our map yet that will be determined as we raise our missions money come on everybody let's go <laughs> hallelujah so we're going to pray for brother Monroe and uh, we're going to pray for his wife his family their, their uh, ministry and uh before you go, I want you to greet him if you can. Encourage him. He encouraged us. Let's encourage him. The baskets are here on the platform. If you could give an offering, the second offering will go totally 100% to him as they're trying to raise their funds. Father, thank you, Lord. Lord, I, I feel this is a divine appointment today. This was a timely word for all of us. And so we receive that encouragement. We pray blessings over Brother and Sister Monroe right now. Father, as they set out to, uh, to reach out to the various ethnic groups all over northern and southern New England, Lord, we know there are hundreds of people from all over the world that have come to America. And many Christian people have left their homes in other nations to come to this nation. And now they're trying to get assimilated, trying to find churches and whatnot. We thank you for that. But we pray, Lord, that their ministry will be very effective in organizing and structuring and getting people to feel welcome in the assemblies of God. Lord, we don't know what the great needs are. There may be financial, it may be relational, it may be a place to worship. We don't know. We just pray, Lord, that their ministry would reach out to those ethnic groups all over New England, from Maine to, to uh, Connecticut. We pray, Lord, for all the ethnic churches to flourish and to prosper even in these last days. But, Lord, bless their ministry as they organize and coordinate and encourage those new, uh, those new ethnic groups that have come to America. Lord, bless their finances. Bless this offering. 
uh, let them raise the funds that they need to, to begin the work that you've called them to do. And Lord, thank you for, what, 37, 38 years of Christian service and they're not done yet. That in and of itself is a good testimony and a good example for us. So, Father, we thank you. We pray blessings over them. Thank you for a good day in your house. In the name and authority of Jesus Christ, we pray. And everybody said, amen. Amen. And amen. Hallelujah. Well, praise the Lord. Uh, You're welcome to have a little fellowship here. There's coffee and refreshments in the back. Don't forget the offering basket if you can. And we'll see you tonight at 6. Right here in the sanctuary, 6 o'clock.